0: Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This is how Mark begins his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus Christ. And starting here and all the way through, I think we can uh, we can read this gospel with the question that I think he wants us to be asking at the beginning, and the middle, and after we finish reading. And that question is, "Who is Jesus?" He doesn't start with the Christmas story. He doesn't start with the, uh, with the nativity, with the birth of Jesus. He starts with John the Baptist, and he starts here in the very first words with the prophet Isaiah. Now, obviously, he doesn't quote the whole of Isaiah, and he references other, um, other prophets as well, particularly in his declaration of Jesus as the Son of Man throughout the gospel. But he clearly has in mind here in the very first words he writes that we as the readers of this gospel, as those who would study it and seek to understand its message, that we would first bring into mind Isaiah and then keep that in mind as we read. So I think we ought to take the time to do that this morning. If we had time, we could read the whole of Isaiah, but we don't. So we're just going to key in on what probably is the key passage in terms of interpreting and understanding Mark. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so, distinct, so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And his, and his form, his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see that they, had not, that they had not been told, that they will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful army? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led to the lamb, like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep he was silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet When his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When we see all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded. For rebels, Mark asks us to call to mind these ideas, these thoughts, these prophecies, as we consider the question that he puts before us throughout his gospel: Who is Jesus? When we have these things in mind, we very quickly identify the key verses. Uh, they might be something like like this one here. Um, Whoever wants to be first must be servant of all from Mark chapter 9 verse 35 or one like this one in 10:45 For the son of man came not to be to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many I find it interesting the parallels between Mark's life his actual life experience and how he arranges his gospel. I think there's a connection and we, there's, there's many different directions we can go as we, we, we try to cover one book each Sunday. But this Sunday I've decided to go with Mark's own biography and then relate that to what he writes and how he arranges his gospel. We won't have time to look at a lot of verses in Mark's gospel. I'll leave that to you to read on your own. Uh, but I think it, it helps me to understand. I think, I think there's a connection uh, between what he writes, what his purposes are, how he puts it together in his gospel, and his own story. Now, Mark's story is never told specifically in the New Testament. But there's mentions of him in various different places and letters, enough that we can pick, put together the story arc, the, the general big picture of Mark's life. We don't know the details, but we know the overall arc of his story, of his life. So I want to look at that. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were probably written in the late 50s to early 60s. We don't have specific dates, but this is the period of time when we know they were written and given out to the churches. And it's it's significant. It's easy to understand why that's the period of time when they were written. It was the period of time when all of the people who met Jesus in person, face-to-face, in the flesh, we're getting old enough that, that people thought these people are going to be gone. So we better write down what they saw, what they heard, what they remember, so that we'll have it in the future. So that makes perfect sense. Um, in, the, in the early days of the church, what we know of the, the multitudes that became Christians, the multitudes that followed Jesus in Jerusalem and Galilee, many, many people met him. Many, many people, even if they didn't talk to him, were close enough to recognize him. And, uh, and, and these people, then, in the early persecution in Jerusalem, we know were scattered across the entire empire. They were everywhere. So, if you really wanted to meet someone, if you were a Christian and you really wanted to meet someone who'd known Jesus or at least seen him, you probably could. You might have to travel to the next town or something. I don't know. Each situation was different, but you probably could. And probably Peter or one of the others would show up in the, in the main city in your area at some point in time in your lifetime. And you could sit down then for, for, for lengths of time and, and ask the stories and hear the accounts. But now these people were in their late 50s, early 60s. And uh, in those days, it was very rare for people to re- live past 65. So they were old. And they were they were they were not long for this earth and so during that period of time the the three gospels were written John's a little bit different situation so we need to back up from that though and and look at um look at Mark himself. Peter writes in first Peter chapter five verse thirteen that Mark is his spiritual child or that Peter is mark's Peter is Mark's spiritual father. So we know they had a close relationship of some kind. Um, The earliest quotations that we have record of in the early church fathers sometimes refer to this gospel as Peter's gospel and sometimes refer to it as Mark's gospel. Now, there's no doubt that Mark wrote it. That was never in question. But the idea is that Peter and Mark had a special relationship, and what Mark did is he wrote down Peter's account. But he did it his own way. We don't know. Maybe he heard the story so many times that he just had them memorized and put them together as these are Peter's accounts of the gospel. Uh, or maybe Peter and Mark sat down together and composed it or like however it happened. Uh, this, is, this is clearly uh, almost certainly the, the account of Peter as written by his spiritual child uh, Mark. And it goes all the way back. If we go to the earliest reference in Acts chapter 12 of Mark, we find out that Mark was probably raised, almost certainly raised, in a comfortable large home, pretty well off. And the reason we know that is because the first mention of Mark is in the account of the Christians that were gathered in the house in a house to pray because Peter was in prison the first earliest time when Peter was in prison. And you remember the story when the angel took Peter out of prison and opened the doors and then Peter went to the house where he obviously knew the Christians would be because that's where they gathered and he knocked on the door and the servant girl saw him and ran to tell the people but forgot to open the door. You remember that account? Okay, it tells us in that account that this was at the house of John Mark's mother. Now, they met in a large house because they wanted all the Christians to be there for prayer. Most houses were very small and couldn't fit everybody. But Mark's mother had a big house, and it was known as the place where Christians gathered in Jerusalem. So this is his upbringing. Mark, as a little boy, was growing up in a well-to-do house in Jerusalem. With We don't know if he ever met Jesus in person, But Jesus was through the streets of Jerusalem. The crowds gathered. He would have heard all of this. And when Peter came in the house, uh, miraculously um, released from prison by the angel, it's quite certain that Mark was probably somewhere between 13 and 16. People tended to leave home, get into their apprentices and stuff around 16 to 18 in those days. And so it was quite likely he was a young teenager. When Peter showed up what an impact that would have on his life and his understanding of the gospel so that's the first mention some of that speculation but it's pointed out to us in Acts that this is where Mark's mother this was Mark's mother's house this is where he grew up this was his home so we don't know anything else about Mark until a few years later when Paul and Barnabas Barnabas are going out on their first missionary journey we find out that Mark is actually a relative of Barnabas and Barnabas Brings him along for the missionary journey, and so he must have been now over sixteen because people wouldn't normally leave home before that. But maybe sixteen to twenty. We don't know his age, but he was a young man, considered a young man in their times. We maybe would, wouldn't leave home like that for a missionary journey until twenty or twenty-five. But things were different, and uh, he was probably just that that young of a person, and he went eagerly with them. And they went to the city of Paphos, and and they started preaching the gospel. And and through a series of events you can read about in Acts, uh, there was opposition, there was conflict, there was all kinds of things going on, and they fled the city. And then then we know that that they went on a long journey, a hundred miles to the city of Perga before they set up shop and started sharing the gospel and seeking to plant a church again. And along that journey on ship and land... Um, You know, in those days, it would have taken many days to travel 100 miles. Um, We don't know what happened. We have no accounts. But we know later on in Paul's writing, he mentions that that in his travels, he was uh, at times uh, brought upon by bandits on the road and different things. And maybe some of those things happened along the way. But what we do know is that when they got to to Perga, Mark jumped on a shift. For Jerusalem, he went home to mama where it was comfortable, where there wasn't opposition, where there wasn't conflict, where there wasn't hardship, where there wasn't danger. He chickened out. He went home. He didn't follow through. His impression of who Jesus was and what it meant to follow Jesus Didn't match his experience on the road with Paul and Barnabas. And I think the question or the the primary thing that Mark is getting at in his gospel is God says, take up your cross. Mark wasn't willing to take up his cross. That's his experience, his great failure that everyone in the church from that day right until this day knows about, his great public failure. He wasn't willing, he wasn't ready to take up his cross and follow. And I think that shapes the way he writes his account. Who is Jesus? It's the question that comes at us again and again in Mark's gospel. Because the answer to that question will determine whether you will take up your cross or not. Who is Jesus? Mark thought Jesus was this, and he wasn't ready for the road. He wasn't ready for the cross. And he went home. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, rather than reading all of it together, we can easily identify that it divides into three sections. Uh, There's three narratives that are put together. It's one narrative, but there's three distinctions in this. The first section of Mark is clearly in and around Galilee. And this is to do with the crowds. And the crowds are interacting with Jesus, and they're having very different reactions in different situations. And the question isn't really put right out there in terms of, uh, as I've got it on the screen for you, but, but it's the question that's, that's always in mind as you read these stories. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? Who do people think he is? And people are interacting in the first eight chapters, uh, and it's crowds of people, and there's there's all these different stories we're so familiar of with uh, around the Sea of Galilee and and all of those things. But but Mark doesn't get into the teaching and the parables. Mark is very fast paced. It's Jesus did this, and then he went here, and then he did this, and then he went over there. It's very it's very um, very, uh, fast paced, very action oriented. He doesn't dwell on the lengthy discourses on the mountainside and, and the, the parables and all of that. It's just action, action, action. Jesus is doing a lot of things. The other gospels take kind of the outline of Mark and then fill it in with all of those other memories. But Mark doesn't, Mark and Peter, as they put this together, uh, they don't get into those details very much. That's why it's shorter than the other gospels. But, Around the second half of chapter 8, it takes a distinct turn. It turns from Galilee, and now it's going to follow Jesus and his disciples, not the crowds now. Jesus and his disciples as they travel to Jerusalem. They're on their way. And he tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer there. And then Mark takes this account of the journey to Jerusalem. And along the way to Jerusalem, the question we have in mind is not the crowd's reaction, but it's focused now on the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And it starts right off there in chapter 8. I'll read one of the discourses that he records, and it's, it goes like this in, 28, in chapter 8, verse 27. I don't know if I... No, I don't have that one on the screen. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages... Near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And we have exactly the same discourse in chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 10, verse 32. The same thing repeated three times on the way to Jerusalem. And Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but we know from the story that he doesn't have in mind Isaiah when he says Messiah. He doesn't mind David returning with a sword and an army and kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem and returning things back to the way they were before. We know that's what Peter had in mind when he said the word Messiah, right up until the arrest of Jesus when he pulls out his sword. He's still thinking that. So who is Jesus? The disciples are struggling with this question as they travel. You can, you can see the struggle in their conversations and in the actions and in the things that Jesus does to show them who he is. This section ends with the transfiguration. The gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit coming and saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then this section ends with the transfiguration, which almost identically echoes the baptism, where God speaks again, This is my son. This time with Moses and Elijah agreeing with God that what we've done in the Old Testament is in agreement with what God's doing here in Jesus it's all one thing it all points here and then we enter the last section of the book of the gospel 11 to 16 is what happens in that week of the passion of Jesus Christ and again the question is before us who is this man it begins with the triumphal entry. Is he a king coming in the line of David to restore the kingdom? It goes on to Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. Is he a man of justice that's going to restore the temple worship properly? Is he a priest? And it goes on to, to Jesus' interactions with the leaders and, and condemning them outright. Is he a prophet that speaks God's word to the leaders? Who is he? And it's never fully answered. He leaves the question hanging. Who is he? Who is this man? It ends up being just kind of an offhand comment in chapter 15, verse 39. An unexpected person. When the Roman officer stood facing, stood facing him, saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Right up until here, he's been referred to as the Son of Man. And it's the Roman centurion, the Gentile, who switches the term in Mark's account. And you can miss it if you just read along too fast. He sneaks in the answer without giving us the answer. Truly, he was the Son of God. Now, there's a bit of controversy around the ending of the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible in front of you, it probably, depends which translation you have, but it probably tells you that the earliest, most reliable manuscripts end in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And then there's additional material that many other manuscripts have uh, and, and I think if you're concerned or confused by that little bit of information that you've probably seen in your Bible before, I'm not going to get into the details right here, right now, but you can ask me about it any time. The answers are not hard to find about why that is. But I think it's correct the way it is. I, it's, you know, I don't know if Mark wrote those later verses and added them afterwards or if someone else did. But, but in the earliest manuscripts, some have it and some don't. And it seems, according to scholars, the earliest don't. But in the way I'm looking through Mark, it seems appropriate to me that it ends in chapter, chapter uh, 16, verse 8. And I suspect, this is my theory. I mean, I've read it from others, and there's all kinds of different things. But my, my thought on this is that the, the, the after verses are part of the gospel and should be there, but they're a postlude because people probably soon realize if you're passing this story to people and they've not have, they haven't had the other Gospels, well, they really need to know that, what happened afterwards. They really need to know that. So we should add that in here so they're not left hanging. They need to know about the resurrection and how it pans out. And so that's I think, was added probably, in my estimation, probably by Mark, but maybe not in, the, in some of his earliest writings because the way he writes the Gospel, it, it's absolutely fitting that it ends in chapter 8. And so I I see it that way that that it is part of God's word but it's a postlude so you're to read Mark to verse eight and that's the end deal with it and then look at the postlude after you've you've done your done your assessment there and this is how he ends the angel said don't be alarmed you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified he isn't here He was raised from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And that's it. Who is Jesus? And how are you going to respond? Are you going to run in fright and not tell anyone what you think about Jesus? What you've experienced about Jesus? See, I think Mark ends it that way because that's what he did. As he was traveling with Paul and Barnabas, He was confronted with the cross and whether or not he was going to pick up his cross. And he ran home. Who is Jesus? Do we run in fright? Or do we take up our cross? Well, let's finish the story of Mark because we know it doesn't end there. We know very little of the details about what happened from when, uh, from when John Mark went home and later on. But we do know this. We know that when Paul and Barnabas were going on their second trip, they had a falling out over John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul didn't want to risk the desertion again. He went with Barnabas. They split up. Paul took Silas. Barnabas took John Mark we don't have the story of what happened with Barnabas and John Mark. Where they went, what they did, how successful or unsuccessful their mission was. We don't know. But we pick up the story in more detail. Um, Well, let's just put it this way as well. We also know that Mark traveled with Peter and spent time with Peter as Peter was later on out of Jerusalem and traveling around. But we do know this. We know that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10... Years later, when Paul was in his first imprisonment, Mark was one of the people that ministered to Paul in prison. And and Paul writes in Colossians very highly of Mark, of John Mark, as one of my fellow workers, one of the faithful ones, one of the ones that really comes through when it gets hard. So something's changed. We know that. And then we find in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, that Paul asks Timothy, and now we believe that, Mark, that Paul is in his final imprisonment and he's going to die soon. He's really in a hard spot now. This isn't like house arrest. This is prison. And he pleads with Timothy, send John Mark to me. Out of all the people that Paul knew, and he knew hundreds of people, he wanted Mark at his side in his last hours. So we know that something changed. We know that that Mark turned that around and became a person who was willing to take up his cross. So I think as we read Mark's gospel, we can see his testimony in there. See, early on, Mark wanted the Jesus who was walking on water in Galilee. Mark wanted the Jesus who was cooking fish on the shore of the sea. Mark wanted the Jesus that had baskets full of fish and and bread. Mark wanted the the Jesus who was turning water into wine. Mark wanted that Jesus. And when he went on his missionary journey, he thought that's what was going to happen. He thought they'd go from town to town, and the power of God would come down, and the people would be would all be healed, and the fish would flow from or or the bread would flow from heaven like manna in the Old Testament. That's what he thought he was getting into, the Galilee experience. And when it didn't happen, he wasn't willing to put his own personal comfort second and the mission Jesus had called them to first. And he went home. The mummy with his tail between his legs. He didn't stop being a Christian. He just wasn't willing to do what God had asked him to do. He wasn't willing to take up his cross. But then later on, and so then that, that middle period where it's all it's the discussions between Jesus and his disciples. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And that was a period of Mark's life where he was back in Jerusalem, kind of wrestling with this. Who is Jesus? What does he ask of me? What does his gospel really mean? What is this good news? And he comes to the conclusion that Isaiah is the key to understanding Jesus, the suffering servant. And And that's why he starts his gospel with, look at Isaiah. When you read these stories about Jesus, have Isaiah in your mind. This is how Jesus fulfills all of the things that came before. The baptism, the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah pointing at the cross. This is the way. In the end, after Paul was martyred, after Peter was put to death, after the persecutions of Nero... After the New Testament period, we know from church history that Mark went to North Africa as a missionary. And he started the church there, which has gone uninterrupted from then till now. Through many ups and downs, times when it's been strong and times when it's been almost completely wiped out. He started that church. He went to North Africa as a missionary. He started a church. It was a faithful and good work But at one point in time, the mobs came up as they always did in opposition to the good news. And they dragged Mark through the streets, threw him in a dungeon, and then later burned him to death. As far as we know, the first person that was martyred by fire. He took up his cross and he answered the question, who is Jesus? But when he wrote his gospel, the accounts of Peter arranged and written by Mark, He never answered the question. He gives us, here is what Jesus did. You deal with that. Are you going to run in fear? Or are you going to take up your cross as he did and follow? This is the gospel of Mark.